Liz, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're really excited to have you. As we already talked about in the previous little bit, you are probably the most recommended guest that we have had so far. A lot of people mentioned that we should interview you. And so we're really happy that the first episode of 2022 uh, is with you. So to kick us off, could you tell our listeners a little bit how you got interested in corruption? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it goes back quite a long time. In the late 90s, I was working as a journalist, uh, living in Zagreb in Croatia, but covering broader Balkans, partly writing for The Economist and the FT and doing some BBC World Service. And the stories that were coming out all the time, particularly in Croatia, so this was sort of around about the time that President Tushman died and um, and then the aftermath. And the stories that were coming out were largely about corruption in the privatization process in Croatia. And actually, it was a quite similar story to what we'd seen in Russia with um, oligarchs. In Croatia, they were called tycoons, but it was a, a fairly similar story of the ruling party, the HDZ, given away pretty cheaply a lot of assets to cronies and often also facilitating them borrowing money from state banks at you know, crazy kinds of conditions in order to be able to buy those assets. So there's the same kind of corruption and, and state capture, I think, in the privatization process. And I was really intrigued by this because this was also in a period where It was you know, very freshly after the Croatian War of Independence. And it was intriguing to me that a, a political party that had come to power with essentially a message which was a bit like, let's make Croatia great again, was then getting into power and stealing all of these assets and giving them away to cronies. So I got really interested in that high level uh, political corruption at that stage. And I went back then to the UK and started a PhD, which was looking at corruption in the privatization process in Croatia and also comparing it with a similar process in, in Hungary. Yeah, fantastic. This is the perfect transition already because we would like to talk about the topic of state capture. And I mean, your body of literature is so so rich that we have to, to pick our topics here. But as you said in the introduction, you were interested in these mechanisms of state capture from the beginning on pretty much. So maybe for our listeners who are not familiar with the term yet, could you maybe explain what state capture is? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a very systematic kind of high level corruption. So in fact, the idea was really developed for thinking about those patterns of uh, high level corruption in Eastern Europe and former Soviet Union in those transition, early transition years. So uh, Hellman and Kaufman introduced this concept and they talked about in particular a contrast between Corruption that occurs at the stage of influencing the formation of laws and policy, so that was state capture, versus corruption that occurs just when you're implementing those laws and policy, and they called that administrative corruption. And I always found that quite a compelling difference, because the administrative corruption occurring in the implementation, that tends to be, I think, much more ad hoc. It's about individuals exploiting opportunities, but it's also something that doesn't have a really long-term impact. You know, you go in, you influence the way that this particular you know, implementation of regulation or something is going, it affects you and is a, of benefit for you um, for that particular decision, but it doesn't have that kind of long-term systemic impact. And by contrast, if you're 
influencing the actual formation of laws and policy and even you know, the constitution, you're really changing the rules of the game in a way that then is going to benefit you into the long term. So that seemed to be to me to be much more destructive and damaging and to have a much more long-term impact. Yeah, that's really interesting. I heard previously the term or the distinction between input and output corruption. So input corruption being basically already influencing the laws and, and rules. And like you say, changing the rules of the game, whereas output corruption is more like <laughs> to stay within that analogy, maybe to bribe the referee that he or she doesn't actually mm -hmm. implement them, right? It's Absolutely. interesting. Yeah. In, in your recent paper, you add to that, that, you know, like, that state capture is not only the form like affecting the formation of law and policy, but also the implementation of policy and uh, what I've particularly found interesting, the accountability ecosystem. Could you talk a little bit about that, like the, the importance of uh, having institutions, civil society organizations and being part of this accountability process and how state capture affects it? Yeah, absolutely. So then I didn't work on state capture you know, in a very systematic way for a long time, although in my work on corruption in public procurement, that's quite similar. But in the last 10 years, I think what we've seen uh, looking around the world is a different kind of high-level corruption coming about, where often what's occurring is it's a kind of state capture, but it's not so much that these business interests are coming along and capturing the process. It's more that people are getting into power in political office, and then they're abusing that power and the influence that they have to change the system, change the rules of the game in a way that not only allows them to steal, but also means that they can consolidate and entrench their power so that it's difficult to remove them. So I think you know what we've seen in uh, Hungary under Orban, what we see in Turkey under Erdogan, in many other situations around the world, you know, increasingly some of this in Poland, in Brazil, uh, very recently in Sri Lanka. This is much more about these politically driven capture. So when I started to go back and look at that and try to analyze it, I thought, well, actually, you know, they, they are influencing the formation of laws, just like the traditional use of state capture, and often changing the constitution to benefit themselves. They're also actually putting in place a lot of practices that make it possible for them to control the implementation. So often using their powers of patronage and appointment to make sure they've got friendly, loyal people in civil society roles so they can control actually that, that implementation type corruption as well. But in addition, they're doing this extra thing, which is they're dismantling the institutions that could potentially check and balance their power. Uh, so in democratic settings, um, this is around disabling often the judiciary. So what we've seen in Hungary, for example, is Orban sacking effectively a lot of judges and putting in place his own um, loyal people. So that clearly uh, means that that potential check on power is really weakened and disabled, but also then extending that out to undermining uh, things like audit institutions, again, stuffing them with your own political appointees or cutting their budgets or changing their powers so that they can't do such effective scrutiny, and then encroaching into civil society space and the media, uh, clamping down on media freedom, making it much more difficult for civil society organizations to operate. So these, this new kind of 
kind of politically driven capture, it seems to me, is working actually in three spheres now. So influencing the formation of laws, rules of the game, influencing the implementation, often through appointments and patronage power, but also then disabling those accountability institutions in a way that means it's really difficult to check their power um, and hold them to account. Well, that's very helpful to clarify, because I, I have to admit that I'm not very familiar with the concept of state capture. And when I looked first at the policy side of it, it sounded very, very similar to an extreme form of lobbyism, let's say, that uh, business people mm -hmm. want to influence the, the decision-making process. So would you say that, that state capture goes beyond it by including the other dimensions and not only focusing on the input side or are there other nuances to that? Yeah, no, so I think it definitely does go beyond that, although, you know, that's something that's included. I've been thinking a lot lately, actually, about trying to change the term, because in a sense, it's not just the state that you're capturing here. It's more a sense that you're, you know, you're in the state and you're expanding the power of the state out into space that should be occupied by some other institutions that are able to push back and, and check on you. So I think the, you know, the term is a little bit confusing now for this slightly broader phenomenon that I'm talking about. I think you know, the other kinds of um, concepts that are around that are, are relevant, a lot of people have been talking about um, democratic backsliding, particularly in Europe in the last um, 10 years or so. And I think that's a, a useful term. But one thing that I quite like about sta state capture as opposed to democratic backsliding is that it really emphasizes the intentionality of capture. And, and one of the things that I try to do in the paper is to talk about, well, what are the actual mechanisms of state capture? So you know, if you are a You know, narrow interest group, particularly a political elite that gets into power, and actually you want to do this kind of uh, state capture, what do you have to do? And so it's thinking about not just rewriting the constitution, but you know, trying to get control over the military and the police, thinking about strategic economic assets, state-owned enterprises, how you're going to distribute subsidies and, and the budget, that kind of thing. So what I like about capture is it emphasizes that kind of intentionality, I think, more than the democratic backsliding, although you know that's also a really useful literature. And it also em emphasizes the mechanisms through which capture occurs. But it also has something in it around you know, what can we do to build resilience against capture? So if we think particularly about this expansion into that third area, the accountability institutions, it really shows the importance of those institutions for being able to check power uh, and stop this kind of thing happening. You could argue, and I think you do actually in the paper, that the Lava Jato, the car wash scandal in Brazil was actually opening doors behind the curtain, maybe a look behind the curtain into the, the systematic uh, structure of state capture. You, you use this term uh, machine politics. Mm -hmm. And I would love for, for our listeners, if you could maybe unpack this for them so that they understand what you mean by this. And if you could maybe also share a few anecdotes from the car wash scandal to illustrate this. Yeah, sure. So that idea of machine politics is something that's been around for a long time. We often actually use it for talking about politics in, in the US uh, in the early part of the um, 20th century and that you know, great Huey Long case and, and that. But so basically the idea is that Government and, and politics is used as a, a kind of um, machine. So people who are in government are able to 
get into government often because they've got donations from private donors and, and corporations. But once they're in government, they're then repaying that loyalty or benefit by giving out things like government contracts or potentially by giving out appointments to particular influential roles. They might try to then use their power of appointments over state-owned enterprises so that then the state-owned enterprises can be the ones that give out the favorable contracts to the donors. So essentially, you've got a, a kind of a machine where there's a, an input into the party, which is these donations, can also be other things, uh, benefits in kind like media support, for example. So if you've got big media holding companies that are in this in this machine, then they can actually use their, their power to say, this is a great government and to really build up the government in the media. So that's a, a different kind of benefit in kind. And then the government using its control over the system to give out state assets, essentially. So when you look at the Lavajato case, you see that it, the whole Odebrecht um, relationship with politics is very much one of these cases of machine politics. So often in Brazil, the there's this coalition central, which is very important to politics. And Odebrecht is very much embedded in this central coalition in the legislature. And so you've got a state-owned multinational petrol company, Petrobras, with a a very big relationship with this construction company, Odebrecht, and you've got them very closely embedded in the uh, executive and the legislature. So the Brazilian president would actually allow this central coalition to decide on appointments to key ministries, state agencies, state-owned enterprises. And in return, he would get support from the coalition for, uh, for his platform. So He's using his patronage power. He's getting support back. The construction company um, was getting contracts from the government and in turn paying kickbacks to the civil servants that were making those decisions, as well as to the politicians and political parties in that central coalition. So you've got a you know, pretty complex web of overlap between business and politics, but it allows this kind of machine politics to occur. When we, when we talk about state capture, like how does it happen? Like what are the risk factors that you identified in your work that make countries very vulnerable to being captured, let's say? Is it like depending on a certain industry or is this when a certain company makes up too much of the GDP of the country? Like what could you identify as, let's say, factors that make countries vulnerable to state capture? Yeah, sure. So, you know, part of this is around, you know, if you want to prevent capture, you, you kind of need to keep politics and business fairly separate, I think. If you do have an economy that has, you know, for example, a lot of natural resources, then that's a classic area where there's tends to be a lot of state involvement in that. Um, and that's something that's fairly easy to capture. So that can be a way that you know, politics and business end up being very much combined. Um, if you've got a lot of big state-owned enterprises that, are, again, very significant in the economy, then you've got that overlap between politics and business entrenched. But actually also certain you know, policy processes that governments might do, like privatization is a, a kind of a one-off, but often really important at a certain phase where of economic development. That can be something where if the privatization process is captured, you're then building in 
inequalities in the economy because you've given out a huge amount of assets to a fairly narrow group. So there are certain policy processes that are particularly vulnerable. Privatisation is one that tends often to happen at a certain point in economic development, but something like public procurement is something that's happening all the time. So in a sense, public procurement is your kind of day-to-day opportunity for getting enormous amounts of money out of the state. So those kinds of things in terms of economic structure can be important. Then thinking about that channel around implementation, uh, I think having a meritocratic system in the civil service, both for recruiting people into the civil service and for promoting them once they're in it, that's really important for overcoming the potential for political influence there so that you can't use civil servants uh, for that kind of implementation capture. Regulation of conflicts of interest. Again, you know, if what we're trying to do is separate business and politics, then we need to make sure that we are regulating conflicts of interest. And I think one interesting thing that we've seen in a lot of countries, particularly Western countries, but all around the world in the last 20 to 25 years, is this really extensive outsourcing of state provision of public services. And and when you're outsourcing such a huge amount of government business, then you are, again, blurring those boundaries and you're creating opportunities and incentives for business to come along and influence politics. So I think, you know, a lot of this capture that we see, particularly in more developed countries um, in the last 10, 20 years, is really facilitated by that big push towards uh, outsourcing and public-private partnerships. So those things are all key. Then if you're sort of looking on the accountability institutions side, one thing that's a good protector against state capture is good campaign finance laws. And conversely, if you've got fairly weak regulation of party finance, then that makes it pretty easy to have this kind of machine politics. So that creates a vulnerability. Um, And then, you know, also protecting the space of all those accountability institutions. So is the judiciary independent? freedom of the media, is the audit institution well-resourced um, and autonomous? So you know, none of these are you know, going to be a particular surprise to people. But I think looking through that lens of you know, to what extent are we able to keep business and politics separate is actually a really good overarching principle for thinking about just reducing the risks of this kind of corruption. Yeah, I want to pick up on something that you mentioned now um, repeatedly that namely state capture is not a problem that only occurs in developing nations, let's say, but it also occurs in in Western democratic uh, countries. And in a previous episode, we had Norm Eisen speak about the Donald Trump presidency. And and he said like the the institutions have been strained, stressed, bent, but not broken. Mm -hmm. And in your own country, um, you refer to to the example of Prime Minister Boris Johnson in your article, uh, how he has been attacking several key democratic institutions, such as trying to undermine the judiciary in several ways um, since coming to power in 2019. I think he even recently referred to the term of trying to correct judges' decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just wonder if you could comment on the current state of checks and balances in the UK and whether these institutions are similarly banned and how you would comment on on their functioning right now in keeping power holders in check. 
So I think I've been quite alarmed in the last couple of years in the UK at how many ways the the Johnson administration has encroached on those checks and balances. So there have been all the uh, encroachments on the independence of the judiciary that you mentioned. So they've sought to weaken judicial review of executive decisions. They've often questioned impartiality of judges. They've called for political oversight of judicial appointments. And as you said, there's this plan for a new mechanism that would allow correcting of court judgments if ministers believe they're incorrect. I mean, this is pretty radical uh, reform. So that's all pretty worrying. At the same time, if you think about how they approach the media, often there's been a big attack on the BBC, on Channel 4, which is uh, known for doing a lot of independent reporting and scrutiny. Uh, And they they often simply refuse also to go on uh, major news programmes and defend or you know be questioned on on what they're doing. So I think those are all pretty worrying things. At the same time, um, another really worrying thing is new legislation that would remove the power of the Electoral Commission to prosecute those who break election rules. Um, so again, you know, attacking sort of pretty fundamental bits of democracy. And then in the area of uh, regulators and particularly regulators of the conduct of MPs and ministers, again, they've had a number of situations where they've undermined those institutions, sought to change them if they don't like the uh, decisions that they get, or completely ignored the advice of those institutions. So again, that's often cases of individual conduct but they're then undermining the system in response to those rather than accepting that someone there has been wrongdoing and that person should be punished for the wrongdoing. So all pretty worrying things, I think. Now, the UK does have fairly strong institutions. There has been quite a bit of pushback about this, and sometimes the government has had to reverse decisions. So, for example, uh, its effort in November to undermine the system in Parliament for regulating MPs' conduct. They had to U-turn on that within 24 hours because it met such uh, heavy criticism. But at the same time, I really don't think we can be complacent about any of this. And I'm quite affected here by the experience of seeing what's happened in Hungary under Orban in that, you know, in those early days when he was doing pretty radical reforms of the constitution, a lot of people were sounding the alarm about that and saying, this is really radical and it creates the opportunity for them to really consolidate their power. And there was a lot of pushback or people just being quite complacent and not willing to believe that at the time, because there was a sense at the time that Hungary was this great front runner of the transition process in Central and Eastern Europe. And of course, we were not questioning um, its democratic path. Now, more than 10 years on, Hungary has been radically changed and it is much more difficult now to criticise those in power or to have any chance of throwing out the government in power. So really radical changes can be made in a very short time because, of course, these are all quite cyclical. You know, Once you have that kind of atmosphere where people know that uh, if they're critical, then that might have personal consequences for them, for their career, then people start to really close up. And um, very quickly, you get that kind of effect where there's really not much space anymore um, to criticise and a lot of people are are worried about doing it. 
So I think it's a serious problem. No democracy is immune to those kinds of changes. And it's really important that we all play our role in continuing to hold governments to account, not just for the kind of policy decisions, but where they're trying to change the rules of the game, then we really need to push back on that and and make sure that they can't change the rules of the game in ways that are just designed to benefit themselves and keep them in power. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on this because, I mean, I think uh, when, I, when I read your paper, it's really eye-opening that this is actually happening within the EU when we see uh, Hungary, when we see also the, the changes that are made in Poland, for example, you now talking about, okay, okay, this is not EU anymore, but still within Europe. And I was wondering now, what can we do about it? You, you talked about maybe some institutional change, policy changes, privatization that could prevent that from happening. But I wanted to expand a little bit further. What can we maybe as academics and also as citizens do very concretely to hold public officials accountable or to demand that accountability of, the, of our government? Great question. So as academics, I think it, you know, it's important that we continue to be open-minded around what's happening and not assume that democracies or certain countries are immune. Um, so that's a key part of it. And I think you know, drawing those parallels with things that are happening in completely different parts of the world uh, is quite important there. So an analyzing within a global framework comparatively, I think, is helpful. And also stressing what the impact of these kinds of changes can be. So I think part of the complacency of looking at these things in democracies is that we people who live in democracies are unfamiliar with how tough it can be to live in a society where you don't have those kinds of freedoms and you can't hold government to account and and so we need to flesh out what are the implications of moving in this kind of direction so actually one of the things that i try to do in the paper is think about so what's the impact of this where does this go um, how does this influence the distribution of power in the long term how does it influence economic development how does it influence the rights of minorities and how might this have a really long-term impact on society you know, some of the my experience in the Balkans I think is quite important here in that you've really seen massive brain drain from the Balkans and a lot of it does seem to be driven by the extent to which state capture has happened and corruption has taken hold in those societies and that means that if you're You're a, a smart young person. You don't want to live your life there. You don't want to raise your children there. And you don't see career opportunities for yourself. So actually, you end up with a situation fairly quickly where you've got this kind of capture and it then starts to change the incentives um, for building up a country, allowing economic development and allowing individuals to prosper. So I think one thing that academics could do is think more about the, the impact of corruption. And I think in general, as scholars of corruption, we are not that good at talking about the consequences of this. And there are all these you know, problems in the academic literature around that are that are raised around white collar crime, that people often think it's a victimless crime. With this kind of political corruption, we need to be fleshing out, you know, why does this matter all the time? You know, why is it really important to resist that kind of corruption? In terms of, sorry, I think I've probably forgotten the other bit of your question. 
Well, the other part was focusing on the one hand what what policy can do. You touched on this already, yes. then academics, uh -huh. but then also what citizens, what the average citizen, maybe there are some people listening who are not involved in any academic work or, or practitioner work in the anti-corruption community, but what are engaged citizens that want to do something about it. Yeah. So I think as a citizen, you know, we all have a civic duty to inform ourselves actually about what's going on to try to understand how the people who are governing us are behaving what their strategy space is and, and what decisions they're making are, and what the impact of those are so i do think that being a an engaged citizen carries a responsibility we do need to make sure that we're aware of what's going on and then hold to account use those freedoms that we have to to challenge and to ask for answers to questions about how public money is being spent and how public policy is being made. And it, I just wanted to stress there too that it's not just about the money. So one of the big issues that the public has, I think, paid attention to in the last couple of years under the pandemic is often corruption in public contracting, particularly around procurement of PPE and, and this kind of thing. And often When you see people discussing that, they talk about wasted money. But of course, the other implications are, you know, how did this affect our ability to respond to the pandemic? Um, did this mean that healthcare staff didn't have good equipment and were not able to do their jobs properly or that infections increased and more people died? So, again, it's about understanding the consequences, I think, often of that and, and asking questions around what's going on. When you touch upon the policy side, what we can do to alleviate the risk of state capture, you brought up public procurement. And this led me to, to another work that you did with Mihai Fasekas on how public procurement and reforms in public procurement can, on the one hand, alleviate corruption, but at the same time, it maybe heightens the risk that it pops up in other places of the procurement process. Could you maybe elaborate on, on this work that you did a little bit further? Yeah, sure. So I'd been working on corruption in public procurement and actually looking at it in the UK in local government for some work I did for Transparency International many years ago. And I came across quite a lot of scandals where you know, people were talking about this kind of you know, cronyism and favoritism in the allocation of contracts. But the problem I had always was that there would be a few scandals, but you had no sense of how prevalent they were. Uh, and then I came across the work of uh, Mihai Fazakash, who had recently published uh, a paper at that point looking at particularly at corruption in public procurement in Hungary, where, of course, I had been following things and, and was delighted to see that there was someone who was quantifying this. And so what was really great about what he was doing was he's using big data to identify red flags in the whole procurement process and, and then to be able to estimate from that what's the prevalence of corruption risks in a procurement system. Uh, can you look across that system and see that there are many irregularities in the process of procurement or in the outcomes in terms of who's winning the contracts or irregularities in how particular state agencies are doing their procurement? Are they usually doing it in a not very competitive way or giving a lot of contracts to just one or two companies? And that system allows you to have a much 
broader systemic picture of what's going on rather than just relying on a few scandals coming out now and again. And so in work that was funded by the uh, Global Integrity Anti-Corruption Evidence Programme, money coming from what used to be the UK government's Department for International Development, uh, we then explored that. And initially we explored that by looking at aid data. So often aid money goes through the public procurement system. And at the time when we started this, it was much easier to get data about aid rather than to get that much national procurement data. Things are much better now, um, and it's easier to get the national level data as well. But we started off with looking at the aid data. And so we were able to collect a a huge data set of, uh, in particular, World Bank-funded public procurement, and to look at these red flags across the process and the outcomes. And, And so... Then when you've got that, the brilliant thing about that is you can then test, well, what happens when you uh, change the regulation, you change the rules? And so we looked at a particular change in the World Bank rules around public procurement, and we found that when they made efforts to improve the regulation and control of that spending, that did have an effect, and it reduced the corruption risks in the public procurement, particularly actually in countries that were fairly low in terms of their level of state capacity. So that seemed to be really helpful. However, what we were also worried about is do you just displace the corruption? And there's quite a lot of people working on corruption say, well, when you increase regulation in one area, you might just shift the misconduct to another area. And you see this with people who work on organised crime as well. You you clamp down on this gang, but then it makes it easier for that gang to operate. And so in a second paper in World Development, we then looked at um, that particular issue. So we went back and looked at the reform, but we looked across the whole public procurement process. And we found that although it did reduce the corruption risks in some areas, particularly around non-competitive bidding, it increased the corruption risks in other areas. So indeed, there did seem to be this kind of displacement effect. Now, that's pretty negative in some ways, but I think it shows, firstly, it shows the importance of being able to look at a whole system and and not think that you're making an impact necessarily if you're only looking at one part of it. Um, So there's a word for academics there or a lesson for academics in terms of trying to um, develop methods for looking at the whole system in that way. But it also suggests that if you're doing anti-corruption, again, you need to think in a really systemic way about what are the incentives here, what's really the underlying drivers of this corruption, and not just think that you can make a difference by tweaking things in one or two places. It's super fascinating what you're talking about, Liz. Um, For one, I want to highlight one paper by Miriam Golden and Ray Fisman that is talking about exactly these unintended effects of anti-corruption measures and really arguing exactly like you do, that we should basically zoom out a little bit and take a bird's eye view and really to understand what's going on in the system and maybe not get too excited about first maybe promising findings if we don't analyze them in a bigger system. Mm -hmm. Now, some of your work has dealt with this system and with systemic corruption and that oftentimes it turns into you know, what some people call the collective action problem that, you know, even those who are tasked with uh, anti-corruption might fall prey to corruption. And then you basically are in in this very uh, vicious cycle. 
in a recent uh, contribution you wrote for the UNODC, you called this like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like people believe that, oh, everybody else is corrupt, so I might as well do it. And if nobody starts changing something, nothing will ever change. Having said that, I actually found your contribution very uplifting <laughs> because you are mentioning several examples for, you know, positive examples where, where things have changed. One of them being anti-corruption clubs, which mm -hmm. I think is a fascinating thing, right? If you think about like, what would the incentive be <laughs> for someone to, to join such a club? And uh, in the paper that is accompanying this idea, you are highlighting that, you know, based on club theory, you can actually sort of find out what are the structural requirements for making such clubs successful. So I would love for you to talk a little bit more about it and tell our listeners and us, <laughs> yeah, how such anti-corruption clubs can actually work. Yeah, absolutely. So I find that work on uh, corruption as a collective action problem really interesting. But when I first learned about collective action problems as a, a sociological phenomenon, what I also learned was that you can get around a collective action problem if you have a club. And so there's a whole uh, club theory which talks about how in the situation of a club, you can overcome some of those collective action problems. And club theory suggests that the club needs to have some kind of entry cost. So you need to pay to join the club or you need some to make a commitment. And the commitment is what's more important here in the anti-corruption context. You also need to then get some benefits that you only get if you're a member of the club. So when I was a little girl, I was a member of the Lego Builders Club and you got a great badge that you could wear to show that you were a Lego builder. But it was about identity. Yeah. So often these clubs in anti-corruption, it's about giving you a certificate, enabling you to say that you're a part of this club and it's a, a standard of credibility. And then, of course, that credibility comes from the fact that there are monitoring of how the club members behave. So if you've made a commitment to anti-corruption in order to join the club, it's also really important that the club checks that you're sticking to your commitment on that. Um, and what I found is that these many anti-corruption clubs that have sprung up really in the business world, they do seem to often have these three criteria that means that there's uh, the club is perhaps working to, uh, to change people's behavior in the business sector. Uh, so there are quite a number of these kinds of initiatives. There's, there's one that's been running in the UK for ages called the Anti-Corruption uh, Forum in the construction sector. Um, and that started off with lots of uh, construction companies getting together and saying, look, we know there is some systemic corruption in this area. There are people who are forming cartels and engaging in cover pricing to win contracts. And there's favoritism in the allocation of contracts. But the companies that wanted to work ethically got together and formed this, this club. And what you've seen is that these have really... You know, spread out um, to many different sectors. So you know, another one that I've worked on is the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, EITI. Um, that's an unusual one because governments are involved as well as businesses. But there's also the Maritime Anti-Corruption Network internationally that's in shipping. Again, really interesting that it's in shipping. It's such a fragmented in industry, not somewhere where you would think that it's that easy to get collective action. And yet um, that seems to be really flourishing. 
but also you've got them springing up in contexts where it's really difficult and where corruption is really systemic. So in the latest phase of this work, I've been looking at actors and business people, often young entrepreneurs who are joining these clubs in systemically corrupt contexts, often in parts of Africa, which I was writing about in that UNODC piece, and talking to those entrepreneurs and understanding how they go about this resisting corruption uh, in a context where everyone is expecting them to pay bribes and where if they don't, they quite likely will lose business. And there's some really interesting individual responses to that, often using social shaming, um, sometimes Twitter shaming, sometimes in public But also these clubs are really important. And actually, um, the Center for International Private Enterprise uh, is doing really interesting work in Africa, um, as well as actually in many other parts of the world, in helping to set up these clubs and really um, encouraging people who want to act ethically and resist corruption, empowering them to be able to do so and actually turning it into something which becomes an advantage for them and allowing them, therefore, to change the norms and overcome the collective action problem. Yeah, we can totally second that. We had uh, Lola Adekanye, uh, who is leading some of the anti-corruption work in Africa from SAIP uh, on the podcast, and it was really revealing. I want to ask one more question about these anti-corruption clubs, because to me, it seems like one of the challenges when it comes to anti-corruption is to actually verify that you are say, abiding by the rules, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say I am a, have a little company and I want to benefit from the positive reputation of being corruption-free and I join an anti-corruption club. How can you be sure that I don't secretly pay bribes? What came you? What did you come across um, in terms of monitoring mechanisms? How they function? Are those usually external entities that are then asked to audit, or are they part of the club somehow? I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the most difficult part um, because, yeah, as we know, people who engage in corruption have power and incentives to cover it up. So it's always difficult. Many of these clubs have essentially outsourced that function to independent uh, monitors. So sometimes, um, in fact, even in, in Thailand, a whole business has sprung up around doing the certification of clubs in the um, to certify that they are meeting the criteria of the, the local uh, Collective Action Against Corruption initiative. And often, you know, the approach there, it's very much a compliance-based approach. So they're going in and they're looking at what systems have you got in place to prevent corruption and to reduce your risks in your business model um, that would potentially expose you to corruption. So sometimes there's that kind of external monitor. And actually, one of the things I found in my work looking at anti-corruption clubs is that an international dimension can be useful here, because if you've got a an international monitor, it means that there's someone who's not necessarily embedded in the local frameworks and power structures and norms, and perhaps able to do that monitoring in a way that is therefore more independent. But also that gives a real credibility boost often um, to the local businesses and allows them to jump out of those local norms and into a set of international norms. But it doesn't have to be um, by any means uh, international monitor. What is important is that these monitors are, are outside the the business and that sort of 
potentially local norm framework. Yeah, I also really like the idea of these uh, corruption clubs because it, it creates an incentive for companies to be, let's say, non-corrupt that goes beyond just cleaning up their own their own business, but also a reputational advantage that they could gain. And I mean, it, it often runs in the danger of this kind of ethics washing or something like this, that is like, like a label, we are in a club, but there's nothing really, like we're not committed to the idea, but I think you have that everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I would, I would love to impact this even further, but unfortunately we are towards the end of, of our interview and I wanted to, to get your point on a, a few other topics as well. And especially on the your overall view on the corruption research community, let's say. So we have a, a lot of young corruption researchers in our audience and I would like to know whether you have some recommendations for them, also some topics that we should explore more in corruption research and some maybe that we have done too much of or that we should retire some, some topics. So what are your overall recommendations to young up-and-coming corruption researchers? Great question. I think the field has changed massively um, in the last 20 years. There were really not that many um, young researchers when I started doing my PhD. Um, so really exciting to see how much is going on here and all of the networks that are being created. I think in terms of exciting areas to explore, I think I would probably say I'm interested in seeing more crossover and interdisciplinary work with, um, with sociology and maybe even with demography. So thinking about our essential humanness and how that plays into corruption and getting into you know, why there are um, social systems and political systems that you know, drive corruption and, and tend to lead to corruption. So that might sound a bit obscure. I guess what I'm saying is to get away a little bit from the regulatory approach, to think more about underlying drivers. And I think what has always been really interesting for me in studying corruption is that I see a lot of pretty basic human functions and traits that really encourage corruption. So I notice on myself that I like to help out my friends um, and do favors when people ask me to do them. And I think a lot of corruption is coming from those kinds of human instincts. And in a way, what we talk about when we, we talk about moving away from corruption is a sort of anonymizing our interactions with each other and making people put professional considerations above those kinds of you know, human social traits. And that's a pretty difficult thing to do. So I think more uh, research which looks at how those things interact would be really interesting. It comes at a time where a lot of people are also pushing for algorithms to replace humans, right? Because they are essentially, <laughs> they might not be swayed and they might be what mm -hmm. I guess uh, Max Weber would call like the perfect bureaucrat because they are completely impartial and indifferent. How we can then still have a humane uh, public infrastructure is probably a topic for a different discussion. But I would love for the interview to end on the pick of the podcast, as we usually do. And I saw something on Twitter, Liz, which uh, fascinated me. Um, you say that you collect examples of where music and arts are used in anti-corruption campaigns. And we 
would love to hear what are your favorite examples if you could share a few we will obviously link to them in the show notes and how you came across them would also be really interesting to to, to hear yeah sure so um i sometimes do a class with our master students um where i ask them to bring in examples of where music and art uh, have been used in anti-corruption campaigns and i think my My all-time favorite is a, um, a little dance video that is done by some Colombian senators a couple of years ago to launch a, an anti-corruption campaign. Oh, is that by Antananas Mokos? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that one. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's it's brilliant. It's so fun. It's so uplifting. It's good to see people who are in really serious public office roles willing to kind of get out there and dance and, and be fun about it. So yeah, I do think the positive messages um I really like. At the same time, you know, this clever art around potholes in the road, for example. So remember in Russia, there were some local civil society activists who were painting the faces of local corrupt politicians into the potholes in the road so that the pothole would be the mouth of the, the politician um, or, or something. And I think, you know, that's also really creative. Making people laugh, you know, humor's brilliant, actually. You know, I love political satire. And so I think all of that is really good, actually, at getting the point across, but also empowering people and making them realize that it's important to stand up. You know what, what a better way to end than uh, on let's make anti-corruption fun again, <laughs> I guess. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Liz, for taking the time. This was really, really nice. I hope we can have a part two where we touch on all the other topics that uh, we didn't have time to go into detail about. For now, thanks a lot for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much. It was a great chat.